Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Flory, who is an associate professor of physical education at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Um, we are here to discuss her article, Challenges to Culturally Responsive Teaching in Physical Education Teacher Education Alumni, a Mixed Methods Analysis. Uh, this article was recently published in JTPE. It's a head of print right now. You can access it. Um, I'll put the full citation of the article in the show notes. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast and thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me again. Uh, it's been a little while, but happy to be here. I uh, want to give a quick shout out to uh, Craig Neiman and Dr. Rebecca Wiley, who were the co-authors on this paper. And you have been a busy scholar, spending some time in Malta as a Fulbright, and now coming back and reacclimating, surviving a hurricane, and <laughs> you're you're back at it. I I am back at it. It's um it is very odd because I had a much different schedule um while I was in Malta with uh, teaching and, and doing research and um you know getting to know the the cohort that was uh just sort of plugging away as i was uh overseas and i have a new cohort of students as well so uh two doc students uh you know just lots of different changes and and things but um it's exciting happy to happy to be in tampa still and uh we were very fortunate to miss uh most of the damage so um yes always a risk when you live in florida so absolutely but then you have the benefits of a lot of sunshine all year round. I, I do typically, yes, I do typically wear flip-flops uh, a lot of a lot of months that many people don't. So yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So uh, let's talk about your study. Can you tell me like a little bit of the background and just overall, like what's the current status of PEAT programs regarding issues of social justice and kind of what led you to doing this type of research? Yeah, great question. Thanks for that. It's like you do this um, regularly. Still. Well, Alba um, so... also helps me with the question. Oh, so okay. these are also really questions from <laughs> good questions from her. But yes, thank you. Excellent. So um, a few years ago, I was involved in an international study on PEAT programs and social justice that was spearheaded by uh, Jen Walton-Pissette up at Kent State uh, to... Um, Sutherland at Ohio State and several of our friends at, at universities across uh, the globe, really, to to take a look at what PEAT programs are doing to um, to teach issues of social justice. Uh, and we looked at it from a variety of, of, of perspectives, um, because some countries do have like a national curriculum and are theoretically based and, and others like the U.S. do not. So uh, we weren't exactly surprised by the findings um, that a lot of programs just don't incorporate any any sort of culturally responsive teaching or, or issues of social justice in their uh, programs. But, you know, there's a couple of us across the world that that intentionally do that. And so knowing what we knew about, you know, what what's going on, we wanted to, I wanted to take a little bit of a deeper dive and see, okay, like I'm intentionally trying to make this happen, but but what effect is that happen is that having on on, you know, students and, and teachers in the communities, you know, here in, in Florida, at least. So um, we found a uh, we found a survey about culturally responsive teaching self-efficacy that had been validated. Um, gosh, I think it was first uh, done back in like the early 2000s, you know, maybe 2010 ish. Uh, it's crazy to think that that's like early 2000s now, but uh, but it was done with a lot of different, uh, you know, pre-service teacher education students um, in a variety of different um, uh, majors but never never pe really so we contacted 
the alumni from uh, the USF program to ask them to complete this uh, this questionnaire and fill it out with, um, you know, just being as honest as they could. And then um, to see, you know, we're trying to do these things, but are we are we getting anywhere? So that's kind of what started it. And we um, went a little deeper and then worked with the students or worked with the alumni that had that claimed to have urban teaching experience. And we sort of did a, a more uh, in-depth interview with them. Right. So. Because your your program specifically is focused on, or not only focused on, but you have an urban education tilt to your program and you send students to go in to work in Title I schools in their we, undergraduate experience, right? Yeah, we definitely try. Um, I became the program coordinator in about 2014. And at that point, I looked at all of our courses to kind of see and the, we didn't have um, like one particular course in, within the PE program that dealt with issues of social justice, cultural relevant teaching, language, you know, other issues of diversity, inclusion. And so uh, I wanted to kind of sprinkle it throughout for a more, you know, uh, I guess, fluid experience for, for students. Um, so when I became program coordinator, we started looking at, I started looking at a lot of the different assignments and experiences that we, that we provided for students within uh, the program. I specialize in secondary uh, methods, especially. So I made sure that we were um, sending students into schools that had diverse populations, uh, that had you know a lot of uh, students that uh, spoke English as a second language, for example, yeah. Um, or that yeah were Title One. So um, we really do try because that's you know we we know from a lot of the research that's done that the highest needs schools are the ones that are hiring first. So I you know I wanted students to be able to feel comfortable getting into a, a, you know, a school that wasn't just a bunch of suburban kids like they were. Um, so yeah. yeah. And we'll talk about how that worked out. Um, but before we get there, um, we've talked about in this podcast culture about cultural relevance theory. We've had some podcasts about self-efficacy. Um, and I'm going to add a list of podcasts at the, in the show notes so people can kind of go and dig deeper in this. But I'm wondering if you could just give us an overview of these theories and kind of tell us how you use them in your specific research. Sure. Um, and I will be the first to uh, to say that uh, I am very grateful for uh, Dr. Rebecca Wiley and her knowledge of statistics and self-efficacy theory because that is not my forte. Um, but I have done, obviously, a lot of work with uh, cultural relevance theory, culturally relevant physical education. We chose to use um, culturally responsive teaching theory because the the survey was specifically based on some of those elements. Um, and there's, you know, there's just, I can remember very early AERA uh, conferences when I was uh, a wee graduate student and just totally nerding out and being able to sit at a table with Gloria Ladson Billings and Jenna Begay and hearing them talk about, you know, their work. Um, and so we, we really leaned into that. Um, there's another paper that we published right before this one that just kind of gave an overview of all of the the um, responses from our students uh, or our alumni, and this one really focuses in on the ones that had uh, urban experience. But we, you know, culture relevant teaching or culture responsive teaching is really just like working with your students and and using their perspectives and their experiences as a, a like a, a point of pride, like a strength, rather than looking at it as a as a deficit and saying, well, you know aligning with white middle-class values. And so, um, you know, really trying to empower students to, to use the things that they, that are, are strong and, and are relevant in their culture to, uh, to learn and to, you know, be, um, you know, great individuals. Um, so, yeah. 
And so kind of, can you just give a brief summary? What was the purpose of the study other than you wanted to see if what you were doing or saying that you were doing was working? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we really wanted to, we wanted to examine the, like how our alumni felt about being a culturally responsive teacher and then what challenges they encountered, uh, you know, in, you know, diverse schools to be culturally relevant, uh, teachers. So that's what we were, that was, those were the, the main purposes of the paper. Okay. Of the research. And so how, how did you go about it in like the methods kind of? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we contacted alumni. We happened to have, um, access to their email addresses to the college of education. And, and we have a, you know, we have a pretty good relationship with our alumni that, you know, we still are in contact with them frequently because they become our uh, cooperating teachers sometimes. And, and they'll, you know, they, they keep us in, in informed of their, their progress or where they're at. So we, um, we were able to get responses from about 80 or we had a lot, 85 that we contacted, uh, and we got responses from about 43 of them, which is a little over 50%, which, you know, for a survey, I've learned that's a pretty good response. Uh, but then we had the, uh, we had them fill out this, uh, culturally relevant, uh, teaching self-efficacy survey that, um, a scholar named Sawatu, uh, created, I believe back in either 2007 or 2011, somewhere in there. And then we actually asked the alumni that had teaching experience in an urban school to participate in a follow-up interview. And we had 15, uh, alumni that consented to be contacted. Um, I did not do those interviews to prevent any like bias or like, you know, telling me what I wanted to hear. So um, Craig and Becky went through the list of folks that, that said they would be um, participants and made sure that they interviewed students that they had not taught either since they were both doc students in the program. Um, and they did uh, Zoom interviews with a structured, a semi-structured interview guide. And um, yeah, and then just talked about, you know, the challenges and um, that they faced. And, and we compared those to the scores that they reported on that. Um, CRTSE scale, which is a very different scale. Mm -hmm. um, should I talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah, because it, it's interesting of how it's how it's set up. I would love to. Yeah, yeah. So the, sure. So uh, yeah. So we there there are not a ton of surveys out there that that can that measure, uh, for example, cultural relevance or or you know culturally relevant teaching. That's kind of difficult to do. That's why the self efficacy uh, piece was was needed. So it's a forty item. Uh, scale and this the people the participants rank themselves from zero to 100 and so zero means they don't feel competent whatsoever to to enact that behavior uh and 100 means that they feel 100 percent uh competent to to enact that that behavior or that teaching behavior uh so the score that people get can be anywhere between zero and four thousand uh, it's just like a total score um and obviously you know some people just kind of click through and put, oh yeah, I'm a great teacher and, and, you know, put that they're, you know, 100% confident they can do all these things. Um, but there's no, you know, how do you, how do you, um, confirm that? Right. So that's why we wanted to, uh, follow up with interviews with some of the students or alumni that had had experiences in urban schools. So. Yeah. Cause you had one student that scored 3,830 and then I was like, yeah. wow, that, that is a very confident person. You have yes. a lot of self-efficacy. Yes, yes. And uh, I don't recall exactly, you know, and, and it, it was interesting because some of the some of the students or the, the alumni that, that we did interview were, you know, even though I can 
I recall their teaching from when we were, when they were in our, our program, we have very small cobos we're a pretty, we're a boutique program, if you want to call it that. Um, which, you know, I don't mind, but the provost certainly would like us to have more students. But the, um, the, the students that I knew were reflective and, um, you know, were, were doing their best to, to be reflective teachers. They actually scored a little bit lower than I expected them to. And I think it's because they were reflective and thinking about like, okay, how can I be a better teacher for, for my students at all times? So um, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, because uh, this quote that you said, Candace, whose total score on the scale was 3,830 out of 4,000, stated the inability to communicate with students was probably one of the hardest things. So it's it's interesting just to read, like if you dive into that one single line of you cited yourself as like one of the most competent people culturally. Yeah. But then yeah. like you have an inability to communicate with students. It's really tough. Right. And you're like, yeah, okay. So. Yes, exactly. And, and that was honestly, when we were submitting this paper for publication, you know, that was, um, a comment from a reviewer that, you know, like, you, you, yes, you have these interviews, but like how, like, how do you really know mm -hmm. that the, these participants are, are doing these things without observations and, right. and that's a great point you know like yeah. it's really people can say certain things and 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 think certain things but you know but actions uh you know always speak louder than words and yeah. so um yeah yeah so and then you go thank you for the comment it is outside the scope of the this paper <laughs> we have been considering doing a follow-up study with interviews we will take your uh your feedback into consideration uh thank oh. you uh so let's let's kind of dive into the results uh you talked about a lot of challenges faced by the participants in teaching in culturally diverse settings i'm wondering if you can start off by telling us how your alumni expressed the misalignment between their expectations and then the realities of teaching in urban schools yes yes well i i do want to say that we we didn't say in the discussion on this paper that there was a limitation that we we sort of allowed our the, the alumni to um to uh self-identify whether or not they had an urban teaching experience um based on you know and and that's a very broad definition right mm -hmm. um so we when you know if and when we we did a, another study of this sort we would want to definitely you know tighten up those definitions to for some more clarity yeah. um you know even though we try uh, quite a bit to to expose our, our students to to you know the realities of, of teaching in an urban school um you know they 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 weren't quite ready you know we um we provide a lot of clinically rich experiences for our students they um they do two pre-internships one at the uh elementary level one at the secondary level where they're in schools two days a week um our methods classes at least at the secondary level uh pre-covid we're uh we're in the schools uh and we're to return to schools to be in person working with real live students mm -hmm. uh, for more experience but i think the thing that the students weren't necessarily ready for or the alumni that they shared was the that kind of behind the scenes stuff that that has an influence on um on teaching like uh administrator support and um you know class management and and things like that because they are protected when they go into these schools by a cooperating teacher or by you know their we, you know, we sort of give them a, a, a teaching light experience for at first. And it's not until that um, final internship experience where they're completely, um, you know, immersed in, in, in these experiences uh, five days a week, full time. And, you know, I think if we 
told the students all, or the alumni or the students, I suppose, to all the things they might encounter uh, in a school. If we did that, you know, during their teacher preparation program, I think we'd have even fewer students because I think that it could scare them away, right? So we have to sort of, um, you know, show them or, or or prepare them as best we can without overwhelming them. Because, you know, when you're an undergraduate student that's just trying to figure out what they want to do for the next few years, you know, telling them they might have to call a parent or something like that, that can be scary. So, um, you know, I think knowing, understanding the structure of urban schools was a little bit of a challenge and a, a shock to, to several of them. And even though, you know, we try to tell them like, you're going to have students that might be homeless, or you might have students that are by themselves after school for several hours because a parent's working, like they heard it, but they didn't really get it, right. you know? And, and that was, um, and I don't know how you, you know, change that I, it, rather than just spending even more time in, in schools and, and becoming more part of the student community. Yeah. And I think the, what, one of your quotes was about a student who said that, like, you know, you hear about students being homeless and you're like, oh, that's really sad. But then when you know that student and you know that student's not going anywhere comfortable to sleep that night, it hits it hits different when you're the teacher there. And I yeah. like how do you how do you explain that to a, a pre-service teacher who doesn't know the students? And you're like, these are situations that you might come across. Right. You know, Exactly. So yeah, there's there's a ton of great quotes in the paper, and I'm I'm wondering if you can just like highlight a couple key findings that you talk uh, talk about this. And I will say for anybody that's going to read this paper, it is a really like if you don't know what happens in urban schools, it's a really good uh, results section, a finding section to get some uh, as you have one of your themes as a reality check. Yeah, thank you for that. And again, like I have to thank uh, Craig and, and Becky for for doing those interviews because I I wanted I wanted our alumni to be able to feel comfortable and in, in being honest about what they'd encountered because, you know, you want you don't want to like, I I feel like I have a good relationship with my with my students and my my alumni and so you know I wouldn't want them to to not feel like they could share those things, mm -hmm. um you know I like you had mentioned already like the homelessness and and you know maybe not teaching full time in PE um. Or, or, you know, having a principal that just wasn't very supportive, um, you know, and so then you're dealing with classroom management and, and nothing's happening when, um, when you're, you're going to the, to a principal for support. So, um, and, you know, everything is, it's all very contextual. Um, it's, uh, you, you, every, you can't prepare a pre-service teacher for everything that they might encounter. Um, and it, it's just impossible to do, but you want to try to give them as many as many experiences as you can. Um, one of my alumni, I, I never even heard of this until this interview, but he was assigned to ride the bus with students after school to help control behavior, which, you know, that was that was a shock to me. And I, I think it was an elementary level, but I'm not sure. But um, I, I didn't realize that is, you know, a measure that they're taking in schools to to try to make, you know, to try to improve things. But, you know, and it, it I don't want to, I want to be sure to say that I, I don't, like to me, that's not the fault of the students, you know, like that is, that is, um, you know, I, I don't think kids act out of, of, uh, of malice. I, you know, there's clearly things that are happening that are, are causing kids to, to act out or to, you know, to need the attention or, or to act the way they do. And I just want to make sure that I, I'm like, Oh, those kids in urban schools, that's, that is not my perspective whatsoever. Like clearly yeah. there's a lot of things happening. Um, you know, that, and this was, we were doing this, we were doing these interviews probably during the pandemic, you know, and yeah. so these were, um, 
these were things that were kind of, you know, heading, sorry, that's Roscoe, so, um, <laughs> that were, uh, you know, happening, you know, pre-pandemic. And, uh, you know, I have no idea what that looks like right now because we haven't been back in the schools yet. So, yeah. Yeah. So can you speak to this uh, piece? I and I don't think I prepped you for this, but the, the questions about the African-American vernacular English. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Aaron, well, obviously these are pseudonyms, right? But, uh, yes. you know, they, she said that I also wanted to discourage that, but she felt that it was, quote, appropriate outside of school, but inappropriate in school. And you had this kind of come up a couple times with different students. And so, and just like the call and response communication style or being seem disrespectful or students talking when you're talking kind of how they navigated that and how is that different and how how have you seen uh teachers navigate that piece successfully yeah and and i'll be honest like reading that quote was kind of heartbreaking because that's something that you know language is language and it's always going to uh adapt and it's always going to um be modified to to you know to fit the culture and the, and, you know, that's, that's, I mean, there's slang words that, that we don't use in the, you know, in British English now that were very popular, you know, hundreds of years ago. So mm-hmm. that was a little bit disappointing to read that quote actually, because that, that to me tells me that that student believes that there's a, there's a right way to be in school. And, and I, that is, that is the exact opposite of, of what cultural responsive teaching is. Um, so a, a few things came up with that as far as like the communication and again, our, our students uh, have a state mandated, uh, it's an ESOL strategies uh, course. And, um, you know, it's one of those courses that every student in the College of Education has to take in order to become a teacher. Um, so there's these large classes and um, the the students don't always, they, they think, what does that have to do with me? You know, what is, I'm going to teach PE. I'm just, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be playing sports. We're going to be doing activities and games. Like, why do I have to know this? And to hear that, you know, um, this is clearly an, an issue and something that a lot of the students early on I struggled with uh, was was sort of like a, a wake up to me because I, it tells me that they're maybe the, they're not taking that course seriously or maybe we need to do more within our coursework to talk about how to adjust our communication because, you know, these are, a lot of these alumni are millennials. Like they, they've not known life without a cell phone, right? And you can get Google Translate without a problem. You can, you know, there's, there's and, and there's a, there's huge pockets of Spanish speaking uh, families and community members within the Tampa Bay area. So again, this is, it's not like it's one little pocket of, you know, folks that don't speak English as a first language. So that was, um, that was a bit of a, a, a shock, a wake up call to me because that's not what cultural relevant teaching is, you know, expecting students to, to act a certain way in school, but then be, you know, be, be somebody different outside of school. So, um, we included that be- because clearly, that is something that we can work on in our program, like, yeah. you know, um, and again, that's, you know, that's one person, but I think, you know, several, several alumni shared that. So, um, so this where, was a, a, go ahead. Where do we stand on, like, we're going to go to the expert here on code switching on yeah. teaching code switching. What is that like? Cause early on I was, I was taught that that is the way that you have to teach students that they have to behave one way in another place. And, switch to switch to this type of type of vernacular and then when you're hanging out with your with your buddies you can do this but then when you go into professional settings you have to do this and and i've heard some pushback on 
is code switching what you should be teaching? So where, where, where do you, or where does the research stand on, on that? Oh, that is a, that's a big question. Um, I will say that I am not, I am not up to date on what the research is telling us. Um, and I am certainly not an expert on this either. Um, you know, I think there's a, when you're in a, you know, when you're in a, a class, such as PE, for example, can you have a conversation with someone and not, you know, use formal language? Hello, you know, miss so-and-so, how are you today? Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm going to give a fist bump or say, you know, what up to my, to my students and, and see how they're doing. Um, you know, if I'm writing an email to a professional organization or to someone that I'm trying to get a job with, do I need to use my more, you know, formal language? Absolutely. But, yeah. you know, there's, um, but, I, and I, I give my students the example, like there's a different, like every context has a different culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and just based on like norms and expectations, like, and maybe the way that, uh, you act when you go to a restaurant is different, like a, like a, you know, like a, a five-star restaurant is going to be a little bit different than, than how you, you know, order a meal at the drive-thru at McDonald's. Right. So, and I, I would like to see in education and in, and in PE, like, sure, you shouldn't be trash talking your, your friends and, you know, swearing in class. Like that's, that's a given, but you know, uh, using slang. Sure. There's no, I don't think there's a problem with that whatsoever. And I don't think we need to be, you know, language police. Um, and, and really, you know, I, I used to, you know, work with students that, uh, in my own cohorts that were Spanish speaking and I would, you know, they would make jokes with one another in class and they would teach me what that meant. And so I would, you know, fire it back at them and they, you know, that was, just a, a way for us to connect, you know? Yeah. So again, I'm not the expert. And, and again, that's why there's so much more research. This again, was supposed to be just kind of an evaluation of our program. And what I think it's done is, is really highlighted areas where, okay, we, we've, we've made the point, the students, these, these students know how to create relationships with students, mm -hmm. um, and with the K-12 students, but, but we need to get a little bit deeper and, and, and do a little bit more work and dig in to figure out how can we connect with them more on a cultural level. Yeah, for sure. So. Um, last question off the script. Um, what is the wildest thing that you've seen or heard of from these interviews or your personal experience that you've seen in urban schools that you can say on a podcast? Um, like what are just to, not, not to say like, oh, the, you know, all these like urban schools are wild, like, but just to kind of give a context of something that an urban teacher would have been like, yeah, that also happens at our school. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that I think I've been in this, like nothing surprises me anymore mm -hmm. when it comes to education or my students. So that's, oh, that's going to be a really difficult question to ask. So um, I'll give you a little bit of time to think, and I'll, I'll talk about this. Like, okay. um, in your paper, you talk, Nathan talked about how he's written 130 referrals since the beginning of school year and more than 80 are for fighting or violence and nothing has happened spoke to my principal once to ask why hasn't anything happened and we never revisited the conversation. And so like Michael Hemphill and I worked with one of my old students who graduated from Cal State Fullerton and then took a job at an urban school in, uh, in Los Angeles. And they had closed their locker rooms and he was telling people not to go into the locker rooms and he stood in the door and like stopped this 
like very big eighth grader from going in and the eighth grader like pushed and shoved and tried to get in and basically they get into this like scuffle how he's trying to stop him from going in and some student takes out a cell phone and starts videotaping it and they only see like the last four seconds of the interaction on the ground he gets suspended with pay pending investigation he calls in every morning at 7 30 and calls out every afternoon at three as in he just goes to the gym and does whatever he wants he's paid to stay away from the school while they're doing this investigation takes him five weeks they say you did nothing wrong come back to your class he comes back to the class administration never told his students what happened to him he just didn't come back one day and they thought like he got fired for it and then he came back and they're like oh we thought you left and like during that time he felt so disheartened from his experience that he got another interview at another school and he left but he was struggling the whole time it's figuring out how to be an urban teacher in a diverse school setting and I did not provide that teacher education for him to be successful in that in that situation. But it's just like those things happen all the time. And he's like zero admin help for anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's I know there. Well, and, and I think we're in a, a place right now, especially in the state of Florida, where there's a huge teaching shortage. Um, we, you know, you have principals leaving, shuffling around, especially in these large uh, districts. Um, the district that that is uh, where USF is located is one of the ten largest school districts in the country right now, uh, based on just student population. Um, so there's a lot to, like, a lot gets missed in these really large schools and and systems and whatnot. And and again, I think you know these large PE classes don't don't do much to to help with that either. So, um, and, and the thing that I really try to to teach my students is that you have to become if you if you want to be effective, you have to become a member of that school community and that, you know, it's not, especially the first few years, like that's, you have to earn the trust of students. You have to earn the trust of, of other teachers and parents. And you may, you may get six different principals in, in six years of, of teaching, um, for example, that are going to have different approaches. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when things are so inconsistent. So um, I remember reading that article actually. And, and again, not being that surprised because I think our school systems are so overwhelmed with, providing so many things for students, um, you know, in, in such a little amount of time that, you know, I, I guess I go back to that, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, you know, those basic needs, if those aren't being met, like you can't get anything done. You know, I, I, I try to tell my students too, like, you know, if a kid is like obviously upset about something or like you can tell that they're tired or haven't slept or they're hungry or whatever, like is learning how to use the instep of your foot to dribble a soccer ball really the most important thing that they're going to do that day? Like, mm-hmm probably not like they probably just need a caring adult to like connect with them and be like hey like, you know it's gonna be okay or like I, I'm, I'm here to do what I can for you so um yeah I that yeah the the whole there's a, a, an article um I think it's from like 1990 1995 it's 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 a classic at this point but it's that busy happy good article that mm-hmm. that I'm sure we all read in yeah. uh 
in in grad school and and i don't think much has changed since then yeah. like i think uh you know our principals they want us to they want to know that we can handle these large these large groups of students and you know you don't have desks or, or tables or whatever in a, in a traditional classroom to sort of uh you know control the students if you will um it's uh it things can get a little bit uh you know I don't want to say wild, but I think, you know, things can get a little more unstructured quickly. Yes. So, um, yeah, yeah. And again, like we try not to like scare students off with these, with these, um, with these like horror stories of what's happening, but we do try to like prepare them for like, Hey, like we're going to do our best to prepare you here, but, but every different school is going to be different. Every yeah. single contact is going to be different. So, and, um, and you write in the paper early on, and I haven't read this paper, but the Redini and Madden 1975 quote, like mm-hmm. in the 1970s, I love that you start off with this because uh, the quote is, in planning comprehensive programs for their students, inner city physical educators need to take into account such factors as the interests and needs of students in a changing cybernetic society. Mm-hmm. Stalled on that word. Uh, activities that have high potential for carryover to students leisure hours, socioeconomic and emotional conditions, physical conditions of the schools in terms of facilities, equipment, and supplies, educational philosophy of the school, and the evaluative tools utilized in determining whether students are receiving viable, comprehensive, and relevant programs. Like in the 1970s, we're talking about that. And, you know, so yes, learning how to throw a Frisbee in an inner city school that has very little outdoor space and carries no cultural capital to be good at throwing a Frisbee. Yes, it's a cool skill to learn, but how relevant yeah. is it to what they're, what they're doing in their leisure time with their accesses? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we still think like, yeah, let's just make sure that all these kids, you know, can play, you know, basketball, soccer and volleyball or something. And that's, you know, to, to fill an hour every day. Yeah. So. so I know we kind of talked about this. I'll, uh, I'll see if you want to add anything in, into your second theme. Um, you talked about your participants' feelings of being unprepared to use culturally responsive communication. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have any uh, other examples you want to share. Yeah, I was just, again, this was kind of a, like as we were looking through the results, not only in that CRTSC scale uh, responses, but in the interview transcripts, I, I just kept thinking to myself, like, really? Like, I, I was shocked that this was such a, a challenge because, um, you know, we, we talk about um, doing these things in our in our classes and our in our methods course and things like that. Um, and again, they they have the course that it's it's outside of our of the PE department. So I you know I think sometimes the, those courses the students are like, oh well, this isn't really in my major. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, some of those things you know, talk communicating with parents or, or being able to communicate with parents, knowing whether or not they speak English, or um, trying to you know, or understanding the reading level of students because uh, you know there I mean there's just there's such a wide variety anymore, and this isn't just in urban schools. Like this is happening I think all over the country just because of um the diversity of our country and and you know folks immigrating or or just moving for different job opportunities you know this isn't i don't think this is a specific uh urban school or diverse school uh you know phenomenon uh but it really made me start thinking about how you know maybe i need to start working with um the instructors for that that esol course and and getting some more specific um you know strategies for our pe folks 
uh, one of the respondents said something about like having a specific PE class, you know, for uh, ESOL or, you know, doing a, a course within our program that's, you know, ESOL specifically for PE. And, and you know, I've seen some pretty good examples of that out in, in some schools where, you know, maybe there's a word wall for vocabulary or something. And it's, yeah. all the words were both in English and in Spanish, for example. And that's something simple that, you know, a teacher can do. But it's made me sort of reconsider like, okay, maybe I need to, you know, have a student pick a school or pick an area and, you know, um, find some keywords in different languages that they can include uh, in their lesson plans and, and how to pronounce those so they can feel more confident in in providing those cues because it's not necessarily just Spanish. It could be Spanish. It could be, um, it could be one of the Arabic dialects. Yeah. It could be, you know, there's so many different things that could be there that it's made me consider you know, adding that to a, to an already long lesson plan to to prepare the students for that sort of uh, situation when they're when they're teaching. Absolutely, and it's it's going to be more common than not. Yeah, depending on where Absolutely. you are, and as as we, um, you know, the population changes in the U.S., it's going to be, you know, like we have a we have a big Muslim population in very specific areas in this uh, in this community, and then there's like a Somali population that goes into feeds into this specific school so even if you're in fairfax county public schools which is among that top 10 largest school districts Mm -hmm. it just depends on what city you're in and that might yeah spanish might not get you very far at all yeah exactly exactly yeah and if you have that experience of maybe you know looking for those you know if you know that you know step and follow through is the the keyword for you know one of your lessons and if you can find that in Spanish or if you can find that in, you know, in Arabic or something, then, you know, then you can, then you'll have that experience of being able to do that in other languages. If you, I don't know, yeah. Google Translate can only do so much, but, you know. Well, um, that's another way that you can totally, like, get a student to buy in who's not yeah. interested, right? And yeah. they, like, don't really understand English that well. They have their, like, peers kind of explaining what to do. But if you know how to speak Spanish, all of a sudden that kid's like, okay, yeah, like I'm, I'm into physical education now because this yeah. teacher cares. They get me. They're part of like my culture in these and these specific ways. They get these pieces mm-hmm. like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A lot to, lot to work. So um, yes. as we kind of wrap this up, um, your participants talked about a couple aspects that they felt were missing in their teacher prep program, mm-hmm. um, as well as the difficulties in connecting with caregivers, which we haven't discussed at all. Um, can you talk about this and share some of your suggestions for grappling with these specific issues? Yeah, um, I, that was another thing I was kind of surprised about. Uh, and then I did some reflecting on my own student teaching experience and, and I had to do a full year of, of student teaching when I was getting my teacher certification and um, which, you know, that's expensive for students and mm-hmm. every state's very different. But um, one of the, I, I can specifically recall having to attend parent teacher conferences uh, as part of that experience. But, you know, I also think about parent teacher conferences and, and how like, you know, a lot of parents probably don't feel like they need to go visit the PE teacher if their kid is an active you know, athlete or something, or, you know, unless they're getting a bad grade in PE, they, you know, how much of that has not really, um, happened. So, uh, basically to, to boil down to, it's, I would love to have our students more involved in that and maybe, um, have, 
have our students becoming more adept at at working with parents and and caregivers and things like that um, by you know attending parent conferences, conferences, hosting a family night or something in, that's specific to PE or, or something like that as part of their um, that experience that they get in in our teacher prep program. Yeah. You know, talking to their cooperating teachers about making those phone calls home, but you know, sometimes it's not phone calls. Sometimes it's emails. Sometimes it's text messages, things like that. There's so many, I mean, good grief. It's so different now that, um, you know, are making notes in the, um, you know, the, the learning management system, let's say if they have that, but then that, you know, if you're, if you're a working parent and you're, you know, you're juggling the demands of, of raising children and, and doing all these things, like, you know, it's, um, it's, that's why I think becoming part of the community and being someone that, that the students can uh, can can see as a trusted individual, a trusting adult, um, that that will get you a long way. Uh, because then, you know, if you do need to talk with a parent or whatever, you can you, you have the support of that of that student, for example. So that was a very long-winded answer to say I don't know. Um, well, the sometimes hard to even get in touch with the parents. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I know that. You know, the the student that we worked with in LA, he called a parent. And the number that he was given yeah. was the number to the McDonald's down the street. Yeah, yeah. Like the kid just absolutely. put the, so like, where do you even go? Because that's the right. the contact number that they have. Right, So exactly. that they're waiting for them to come pick them up. But maybe the kid walks home and then where yeah. where's the con- connection, you know? And, exactly. And how can you expect the same level of uh, showing up when mm-hmm. one parent works 20 hours, yeah, right. they're they're there every single afternoon picking up their kid versus right. the other that's working 80 hours a week trying to like make ends meet for a, for a family and yeah, can't exactly. necessarily expect them to be at all the events. So yeah, I know, I know it's there, it's so much more complex than I think our our students uh, with, when they're in these. You know, they come in with these like, oh yeah, I, I like kids and I like being active. I can't wait to be a teacher. And I don't know how to tell them, you know, without scaring them away. Like, it's a lot more than that. Like, it's so much more than that. Yeah. So, um, and that's, you know, but I, I think by the end of the program that we have with them, we only have them for five semesters. And I, um, I don't think that's enough time, but I, I do think that, um, you know, they are pretty well prepared and and, and um, at least to to try to be a, a personal teacher and one that, that cares about kids and, and but we can, we can always do better. We can always... Uh, try to make those connections even more meaningful by um, working with them in more culturally relevant ways. Yep. So thank you. Um, I appreciate you sharing your work. Um, I mean, I I think it's super important and I know you are working in this area in general in urban education a lot more and you have some other good things lined up and we'll we'll hear about them in the ensuing years. Um, But I, I think... I think it's like super important stuff. So thanks for, thanks for sharing. Thanks for having me on and thanks for helping me break this article. I'm just going to do it. So um, I've added the link to this article in the show notes and all of the other episodes that talked about the theories and um, the articles that are related to social justice in, in PE and Pete uh, in the show notes. So you can always uh, look for those. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate it. No problem, Rista. Have a good one.